Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Criminals exist in every culture and country in the world, but few criminals transcend petty crimes to become legends in their own time. The United States has Al Capone, England has the Cray Twins, and India has Fulan Devi. By age 18 in 1981, Fulan Devi had come to know that the world was a cruel, fickle place, especially for women of no means and low birth. As far as the 2,500-year-old Indian caste system was concerned, Fulan was nothing more than a lowly worker ant. And if everything had gone according to plan in her life, she would have disappeared into a life as her husband's property in an anonymous village. Instead, Fulan's life veered sharply away from the ordinary. She became a fearsome bandit, roaming the Indian states of Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh, an expanse of land the size of France. And when her life as a bandit came to an end, she transcended all the injustices she had suffered and enacted against her enemies to become greater than the sum of her experiences. She transcended her caste, her illiteracy, and her social dishonor to become a member of parliament and a symbol of hope and possibility for India's lower castes. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're going to continue exploring the life and legend of Fulan Devi, India's bandit queen. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Fulan Devi had always been a young woman to be reckoned with. 
Not satisfied to remain invisible in rural India, she carved out a life for herself in her village as a quote-unquote dishonored woman after leaving her abusive husband first at age 12 and then for good when she was only 16 years old. As we discussed in part one, she was abducted by bandits and at the tender age of 16 became notorious across the Indian states of Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh as a bandit who sang Bollywood songs as she cleaned her gun. Then, in a split second, her life changed again. Her bandit protector was killed, and she was taken to the village of his killers, where she was beaten and raped for nearly a month. On February 14, 1981, Fulan Devi exacted her own brutal form of revenge upon the village that had raped her. She led the massacre of 22 village men. Today, we'll take a look at the fallout from her massacre, her time as a bandit queen through 1983, and how her careful choices and negotiations with police eventually helped her transition into the world of politics. The 1981 St. Valentine's Day Massacre catapulted Fulan Devi into the realm of myths and legend. Across India, newspapers wrote of the young, low-caste woman who had destroyed an entire village with an automatic rifle. But it wasn't just the unapologetically violent circumstances of the massacre that shocked the country. Her victims were high-caste men, and she, a low-caste woman, had carried out the massacre by leading her own gang of high-caste men. Who was this woman? Would the police capture her? Would she be punished the way the other low-caste Indians were punished when they struck out against high-castes? Or would the lower castes be doomed to stew in their resentment? Harvard researcher Jennifer Lerner and her colleagues explored how resentment and its relative, anger, often motivates a reaction to injustice when almost no other emotion can. We're about to delve into some psychology here, so we just want to give a quick disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. This negative emotion that Lerner described, which they argue is at the root of all hateful actions, alters behavior and psychology, pushing people past the threshold of passive indignation into aggressive action. And once resentment settles in, it can be almost impossible to dislodge, seeping into every interaction a person ever has, whether it's related to the original resentment or not. Fulan had managed to tap into the resentment of the Hindu low castes, Groups so marginalized and controlled because it was believed that the sins people committed in other lifetimes determined what they could do with this one. If you were born into a low caste, then you had earned your lot in life. As news of her exploits spread, Fulan Devi burrowed deeper into the unmappable ravines along the Chambal River, where she and her bandits made camp. The ravines were the perfect place to lay low and let the shock of the massacre subside. The Chambal gullies were deep and maze-like. At certain points, the steep walls rose 25 stories tall. Many of the ravines were also incredibly narrow, so that a person could reach out and touch the walls on either side. They created perfect choke points to fend off the police. A sniper from above could shoot them like fish in a barrel. But the same qualities that made the ravines so useful for hiding also offered the police the chance to get the drop on Fulan. Turning the wrong corner in the Chambal ravines could mean the difference between life or death. For two years, from 1981 to 1983, Fulan ranked on India's 10 most wanted list and lived as a highly sought-after fugitive. 
After the St. Valentine's Day massacre at Bimai, the Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh state governments both issued a warrant for Fulan's arrest. By this time, she was wanted for committing more than 50 crimes, including over 30 kidnappings committed with Vikram Mala's gang and the 22 high-caste murders at Bemai. They placed a price on her head of 10,000 U.S. dollars, dead or alive. To the Indian government, Fulan was nothing more than a criminal. And yet in every small village and low-caste town across India, songs were written about the goddess of flowers, the beautiful bandit, and the bandit queen, Fulan Devi, the vengeful hand of the warrior goddess Durga. She was more than her crimes. She was a caste hero. Research by Jefferson University into the Hindu caste system and minority psychology has found that events that allow minority groups to see themselves in position of power or influence, even if it's an illusion, eases the pain and frustration of their experiences as a mistreated group within their own society. So, in a way, they live vicariously through the accomplishments of others like them. Exactly. It reassures them they're not invisible to history and that their current discomfort isn't necessarily permanent. And it often convinces marginalized groups to transform their admiration into imitation. While she was admired in villages, Fulan was still on the run. She kept moving in the ravines of the Chambal. As police posted guards in villages at the end of the river, she and her gang lived off the land, stealing what they could. Attempts to infiltrate the Chambal ravines was met with run-ins with rival gangs and rival police forces. The police claimed publicly that they had come within a hair's breadth of catching Fulan and her gang numerous times. But their public statements never amounted to much. They could never catch the bandit queen. The police's inability to capture her only fueled the nation's imagination more. Perhaps she really was under the goddess Durga's protection. Perhaps she had finally succeeded in shining a light upon the arbitrary cruelty of the entire caste system. After all, if a low-caste woman under five feet tall could command upper-caste men to kill other upper-caste men, then the entire system was simply a gunshot away from collapsing completely. Extensive work on the power of myths has been done at the University of Bucharest. They found that one of the primary functions of myth is to give humanity examples of triumph, even in the face of tragedy. Famous mythology professor Joseph Campbell said that the four roles of myth in society include allowing people to be comfortable with life's unavoidable mystery, to develop creation stories and explain their world, to support a particular worldview, and to allow us to function no matter the circumstances of our life. Fulan's upbringing, her rebellion in the face of caste expectations, and the extraordinary way she had reinvented herself in the face of the terrible things that had happened to her made her into a hero of mythic proportions for many in the lower castes in India. But a life on the run is harried and uncertain. The longer Fulan remained at large, the more painful the punishment for the crimes of her gang was likely to be. The more manpower the Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh police threw at her manhunt, the less assured her future became. But Fulan knew she couldn't simply walk into a police station and give herself up. She was considered a ruined woman, a killer of high castes. If she returned to Uttar Pradesh, the Indian state run primarily by the caste she had slaughtered, she would never make it to trial. Her high caste enemies would finish her off first. 
Instead, Fulin grabbed her legend by the horns and rode it into a future of her own making. We'd like to share a quick recommendation with you. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. And now, back to the story. In 1982, on the run for her part in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, 18-year-old Fulan Devi began exploring ways to use her growing fame to get herself out of trouble with the law. She developed a strategy for her own surrender, using the media hype that had grown in her absence. Across India, newspapers frenzied over the details of the larger-than-life bandit queen while the real woman waited patiently to emerge from hiding. In July 1982, 17 months after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Fulan sent an envoy to meet with a police superintendent named Rajendra Chaturvedi in the Indian state of Madhya Pradesh. Madhya Pradesh borders the state of Uttar Pradesh, where she had carried out the massacre. The Chambal River and its labyrinthine ravines traverse both states. Between July and December of 1982, while tabloid gossip raged about the exploits of the bandit queen, 19-year-old Fulan and Chaturvedi negotiated through messages. Fulan would leave messages with villagers before disappearing into the ravines. Chaturvedi replied through messages given to bandits as they left jail. These messenger bandits knew how to dodge the police, so attempts to follow them into the ravines failed. Her terms were vast and difficult to procure, but with the police force in the state of Madhya Pradesh looking more foolish with each passing day, Fulan quickly realized she could ask for almost anything. Eventually, Fulan gave him a list of 15 conditions for her surrender. Her family and animals would be moved from Uttar Pradesh to Madhya Pradesh. This would protect them from any potential revenge by the high caste of Takurs that she had attacked in the massacre. Fulan would also never be hanged, a common form of death penalty at that time in India. Instead, she would serve a shortened prison sentence in a jail with outdoor privileges. It was also agreed that she'd never be handcuffed. All of her crimes, past, present, and future, would be tried in Madhya Pradesh, whether they were committed in Madhya Pradesh or not. Essentially, this protected her from ever having to return to Uttar Pradesh, where she would most certainly be killed. And the bandits who surrendered with her would receive prison sentences no longer than eight years. Her family would receive a plot of land to cultivate, as well as police protection and jobs. And finally, all of these conditions would be signed and approved by Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi, son of Indira Gandhi, the first female Prime Minister of India. While it's unclear whether this final condition was carried out, 
the rest were readily agreed to by the police superintendent. In a way, with her surrender to police, Fulin was finally protecting her family the way she had tried to do as a little girl, fighting her cousin to protect her family's land. It had only taken a lifetime of suffering and the massacre of an entire village to get it. As the Madhya Pradesh police superintendent made arrangements, however, news of Fulin's conditional surrender leaked to the police in Uttar Pradesh, who were desperate to arrest her for the massacre she had committed in their state. They stopped cooperating with the police superintendent and refused to help him fulfill the conditions of Fulan's surrender. On January 6, 1983, Madhya police sneaked across the Uttar border, collected Fulan's family, and smuggled them back across with them. When Uttar police found out about the trickery the next day, they charged police superintendent Chaturvedi with kidnapping and arrested six visiting Madhya policemen. Along the Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh state border, tensions flared between the rival police departments. Spats grew vicious. Gunfights between police erupted. Hunts for bandits, any bandits, in the Chambal River ravines intensified. Uttar police began crossing the border in the hopes that they would accidentally encounter Fulin's gang before she could surrender. On January 26, 1983, Uttar police encountered a rival gang led by a bandit named Muslim, one of Fulan's peers. The police chased Muslim deep into the ravines, past the Madhya border. An overeager policeman drew his weapon and fired. The sound echoed through the ravines as Muslim stumbled, struck in the abdomen, then pulled himself to his feet and fired back. He escaped the police shortly after, crawled six miles through the ravines and warned Fulan. Police Superintendent Chaturvedi scrambled to secure the border even tighter and to convince Fulan that no harm would come to her, but she was badly rattled by the event. She and her gang fled to neighboring Nepal, even though there was a price on her head there as well, due to the notoriety of her crimes in India. It took Chaturvedi another week to convince her to return and follow through with her surrender. Fulan agreed, so long as the rest of her conditions were met. In early February 1983, Chaturvedi handed his rifle off to a deputy officer and began his unarmed trek into the Chambal ravines. 300 officers were on hand for the event of Fulan's surrender, but the actual arrest would be made by Chaturvedi alone. After six miles, Chaturvedi encountered Fulan and 12 of her men. Mauser rifles over their shoulders and bandoliers strung across their chests. She and her men came willingly. When they emerged from the ravines several hours later, however, the officers were struck by how easily the surrender had gone. They were also surprised to see the woman who had evaded their nets for so long. Standing before them was not a demon, but a tiny, sharp-eyed young woman ready to end the chase that had consumed her life. 19-year-old Fulin and her current lover, a bandit named Man Singh, were driven to join her family in an isolated safe house in the city of Bind. The nation's newspapers salivated for a glimpse of the recently retired bandit, and they got their chance on February 12, 1983, when a crowd of 8,000 gathered in the city of Bind to watch her publicly surrender. Fulin, Man Singh, and her 12 men joined the chief minister of Madhya Pradesh on stage. Portraits of Mahatma Gandhi and the goddess Durga framed her. Their presence had also been one of the conditions of her surrender. 
As the crowd watched, she bowed to each portrait and then knelt and touched the feet of the chief minister. As she stood, she lifted the rifle she wore over her shoulders and held it above her head. The crowd cheered. Whether she fulfilled their outlaw fantasies is lost to time, but the people seemed to embrace the small, humbled woman that stood before them. Perhaps the fact that she seemed so normal only fueled their appreciation more. Famous psychologist Carl Jung spoke frequently of archetypes and our ability to relate both to heroes and to the villains they fight. Heroes show us what we're capable of at our best, while the most powerful and influential villains act upon the dark impulses we all feel sometimes. A villain who fights back against the system can resonate far more than a perfect hero, especially to people who are feeling vulnerable and marginalized. Fulan sought revenge against the men who had raped her and killed her protector Vikram. But at the same time, she was lashing out at a caste system that had condoned the mistreatment of her people. Police Superintendent Chaturvedi later told reporters that Fulan was no more a folk hero than she was a bandit leader. That the portrait of her as a sage and vengeful low-caste champion were conjured up in the mind's eye of the media. He would tell them that in reality, she was immature, brash, and easy to anger, a victim who had run wild with the nation's imagination. And yet, she had accomplished everything she set out to do. She was surrendering on her own terms. And in that moment, she was both hero and villain. The same hero and villain India's downtrodden recognized in themselves. For her 55 charges of kidnapping and murder, 19-year-old Fulan Devi served 11 years in prison. Even from behind bars, Fulan became a figurehead for a sweeping movement of reform in India, particularly in her home states of Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh. And while Fulan equated her stay in prison to rotting away, she seemed to stay busy stoking the fire of the myths around herself— Almost immediately after she entered prison, she attracted the attention of renowned civil and human rights activist and writer Mala Sain, who visited Fulan Devi to convince her to publish a book detailing her life story. Because Fulan was illiterate, she dictated the tales of her life to fellow prisoners. Mala Sain picked up these notes on frequent visits to Fulan over her 11-year imprisonment. These notes culminated in a biography— published by Mala Sain in 1991, called India's Bandit Queen, The True Story of Fulan Devi. Not that she needed a book. For the millions of India's illiterate poor, the example she had set for them and songs and stories about her were enough to keep her legend alive. In 1993, during Fulan Devi's 10th year in jail, an alliance of low-caste politicians triumphed at the government elections in Uttar Pradesh. And on January 20th, 1994, the state's new chief minister, Mulayam Singh Yadav, who was also low-caste, announced that Uttar Pradesh would drop all remaining charges against Fulan Devi, effectively pardoning her of the crimes for which she was already serving time. On February 19, 1994, 30-year-old Fulan Devi enjoyed her first taste of freedom in 11 years— Emerging from the courthouse onto a New Delhi street to the roaring approval of a crowd of supporters, the legend of Fulan Devi was alive and well. The mostly low-caste crowds waited with bated breath to hear whether Fulan would continue fighting for them now that she was free. 
Fulan revealed that she was already in talks with several political parties to run for a position in the lower house of India's parliament. But her release from prison was marred by the 1994 release of a film based on Mala Sain's biography called Bandit Queen. While Mala Sain had written the script for Bandit Queen, the actual execution of the script had been highly controversial. Fulan Devi decreed the choices made in terms of the events that were kept in the film and those that were cut. In particular, Fulan and Malasane objected to the overly graphic gang rape scene, which the director had chosen to linger on in the film. The scene sparked an international debate about the irony of acting out a rape scene without the permission of the real woman who had been raped. There was also the little problem that the film had been produced without consulting Fulan at all or paying her for her own life story. Fulan sent a message to the Indian media and the film's producers and director. If they refused to cancel the premiere of the film in India, she would set herself on fire in front of the theater on opening night. Let's take a short break. We've got a recommendation for you. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now let's get back to the story. After 30-year-old Fulan Devi's release from prison in 1994, a film about her life featuring a graphic reenactment of her gang rape was poised to premiere in India. Imagine what it must have been like to see the worst moments of her life, the moments that had dishonored her and her culture, brought to life for billions of people without her consent. With the help of Mala Sain and Arundhati Roy, authors of such works as God of Small Things and The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, Fulan worked to get the film banned in India, but the film was a critical success elsewhere. Ultimately, the producers of the film agreed to pay Fulan a fee for her life story, but Fulan remained adamant that the film was inaccurate and focused on the wrong aspects in her life— painting her as a sniveling woman when she was anything but. Keenly aware that she held the country's attention, she used the controversy of the film to publicize her own autobiography, which other prisoners had scribbled down for her in prison. If people wanted the truth, they would know where to get it. Meanwhile, Fulan prepared for the next phase of her life. She turned her attention to her campaign to be elected to India's parliament— she would be running for the Samajwadi Party, essentially a democratic socialist party. 
To quote the Democratic Socialists of America, Democratic Socialists believe that both the economy and society should be run democratically to meet human needs, not to make profits for a few. Fulan's unmistakable appeal to the lower castes of India seemed infinite. In 1994, Mulayam Yadev, the man who had pardoned her for crimes and who had been promoted to Indian Minister of Defense, took her under his political wing. Yadav helped Fulan arrange for her first campaign tour, a tour that would take her back into the heart of Uttar Pradesh. Even though she had served her time for several of her crimes and been effectively pardoned for the rest, the choice to tour there was still a massive risk. The state was still run by the caste she had slaughtered, and she received numerous threats against her life. Still, Fulan was determined to go. She visited as many low-caste villages as she could across the state, surrounded by a motorcade of heavily armed guards. Fulan was a savvy woman. She was a hero to the lower castes, which made up approximately 85% of voters in India. By returning to the state where she had once feared to tread, she was effectively showing them that she had beat the system. We want justice! On top of that, fate seemed to play a part in her campaign. India in the 1990s was a place of incredible and fickle transformation. For the first time since the British had left India, a government of moderate, liberal, and low-caste candidates had managed to knock the ruling castes out of power. And at the center of it all was Fulan, an illiterate former bandit who had the ear and imagination of the entire nation. An illiterate woman with the mind of a military strategist. Journalist Sunil Sethi, who had followed her entire campaign, told The Atlantic magazine, quote, Fulan's two great gifts are rabid cunning and fatal charm, an irresistible combination and a great achievement in a woman who is so brutal. Fulan is a do-it-yourself goddess who can rapidly demonize, end quote. She was also an adept multitasker. In the two years after her release from jail, she married a realtor and politician named Umed Singh. Singh advocated for the untouchable caste, the people so low in the caste system in Hinduism that they aren't even a part of it. She also converted to Buddhism, spiritually removing herself from the caste system entirely, a move that inspired thousands of other low caste people to do the same. In 1996, 33-year-old Fulan Devi won a seat in the lower house of parliament in a landslide election. Detractors believed she had run simply for the parliamentary immunity that goes with the job, but her early years in parliament were routinely marked by her decisions to visit prisons in the region to observe their conditions. Almost in a throwback to her time with the gang running train heists, she took to stopping trains along their tracks to meet her people face to face. She also found time in September of 1996 to embark on a book tour around Europe promoting her autobiography. As is to be expected, her time in Parliament was a deeply controversial and divisive one. It was also marred by a repeated attempt to send her back to prison for her crimes. Certain pardons in India are given only for a certain period of time before they must be renewed. But if there's no one willing to renew them, the accused can be tried again for the same crime. In a country with deep caste divisions, that gave her enemies the opportunity to gain the upper hand over her again. On February 4, 1997, 
33-year-old Fulen was summoned to court to be retried for her part in the 1981 St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Instead of appearing, Fulen simply vanished. Her name once again appeared at the top of India's most wanted list. In a fantastic twist that only fed her legend more, just a few days after she became a fugitive for the second time in her life, Fulan Devi found herself on the nominee list for the 1997 Nobel Peace Prize. Fulan resurfaced in Delhi on March 20, 1997, on the last day of Parliament's session. She retook her seat, claiming to have never known about the court summons at all. The threat of a retrial for the massacre would shadow her for the rest of her life. But despite charges pending, 36-year-old Fulan won her parliament seat again in the 1999 election. During each voting season, the lower castes and untouchables of India came out in droves to support her. They were renewed by her story as much as by her determination to voice all of the injustices low castes had been forced to bear silently. Fulan spent her time in Parliament trying to draw attention to problems the high castes believed didn't exist. Her strength lay in her ability to catch and hold people's attention, even when those in charge tried to hide the crimes that were being committed against low castes across India, and in particular against women and child brides. Of course, change in a 2,500-year-old system is never going to happen overnight— so Fulan continued to voice problems the low caste faced in a casual manner that emphasized just how normalized crimes such as rape, murder, and pedophilia had become for her people. In a way, it was like her fight with her cousin Maya Din for her father's land all over again. Only now she had a national platform. In a sort of poetic irony, the same star quality that allowed her to capture and hold the attention of her country for almost two decades also kept a laser focus on all she had done and the reform she represented. She could never outrun her crimes or the hatred they inspired in her enemies. Her enemies were the caste system itself and those who benefited from it. As had been true her entire life, the upper castes saw her as a brazen affront to their way of life. They also resented that she had killed high-caste people in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and that she hadn't died in an act of retaliation, a common result of caste warfare in India. Eventually, her enemies found a way to reset the balance. On July 25, 2001, a green car silently pulled up to the gate of her home in New Delhi. Inside, three high-caste men waited, carrying handguns. When 37-year-old Fulan returned home, they pulled masks down over their faces, emerged from the car, and opened fire on her at the door. Fulan's wounded bodyguard drew his own weapon and fired back, striking one of the shooters. The attack lasted only seconds, ending Fulan's life as quickly as she had ended the lives of 22 high-caste men in Bamai 20 years before. Her attackers fled and changed vehicles in one of Delhi's most congested commercial districts. Within a few minutes, half the city knew that Fulan Devi, the bandit queen, was dead. Within a few hours, news of her death had reached Europe. As the police began to piece together the events of the afternoon, they found anyone and everyone willing to blame her death on the actions of higher castes. Every few weeks, we see instances of uh, militia backed by either the upper or the lower castes attack people from the rival caste, and a few weeks later, there's a revenge attack. 
It was clear that no matter who had killed Fulin, the country would demand as much effort in catching her killers as the police had expected in trying to find Fulin two decades earlier. India's home minister promised action, and India's president called the men responsible cowards. New Delhi's police combed the streets, looking for clues and gossip that might have helped them nail down the culprits. They used the license plate of the dumped car to narrow down suspects, and the city's hospitals were put on alert to report any men with bullet wounds, as one of the assailants had been struck trying to escape. And yet the investigation was marred by incompetence and confusing behavior from all sides, Before police had even arrived to the grisly scene of her murder, one of her own party members had taken the killer's guns from the scene and hidden them in Fulan's garage. The worker claimed he was moving the guns to keep them safe and away from street children. Even more bizarrely, others in the house had discovered the weapons and withheld the information from police until a thorough search of the house uncovered them. By then, critical forensic evidence had been destroyed. A week after her death, the plot deepened even further. A 28-year-old man of the high Takur caste named Sher Singh Rana called a press conference to confess publicly to assassinating Fulan. He told the press that he had killed her both to avenge the men she had killed in the St. Valentine's Day massacre, but also because he was seeking an edge up as he began a career in politics. It should be noted that the only evidence they had that Rana was even involved was his press junket confession. Many police officers, Fulan's family, and others in her political party thought Rana was nothing more than an opportunist. An additional 12 suspects were rounded up. All 13 men faced charges in court, even though all the witnesses agreed that only three men had been present at the time of her death. Rana never named any other potential gunmen. The court system in India, like in the United States, can be laboriously slow. From 2001 to 2014, the trial against Fulan's killers limped along until Rana, and Rana alone, was found guilty of Fulan's murder on August 14, 2014. The other 12 men named in the charges were released due to insufficient evidence. After the judge sentenced Rana to life imprisonment for Fulan's murder, Rana asked, quote, why have you convicted only me? End quote. It was a question Fulan's family echoed. The investigation after Fulan's murder and the years that followed it unearthed no new evidence against her killers, so it's likely that they'll never face prosecution for their crime. Instead, the Takur caste took the opportunity at Rana's sentencing to proclaim him a hero of their caste, almost in an attempt to recreate Fulan's heroic rise after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Despite her detractors' best efforts to help her disappear into obscurity, Fulan's legacy lived on. Her death galvanized many of the revolutionary parties fighting the ruling classes in India. Rallies have denounced police failures to respond to the rapes of children. We want justice! We want justice! We want justice! 2001 was the first year in which female literacy in India rose above 50%. Additionally, Work programs such as Manrega guarantee low-caste and poor Indians a minimum of 100 days paid labor to help them escape poverty. And thanks to improved cleanliness across rural India and access to health care, India became polio-free in 2012. It may be centuries before the castes resolve their differences in India, but even then they will remember the bandit queen Fulan Devi, 
the woman who helped light the fire of revolution. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.